The reading is from Ecclesiastes. That's page 556 of the Bibles um, in the seats there. So it's Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'm reading from verses 14 to 29. Page 556. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows how many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off, that which has been is far off, and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Uh, Mark Twain... Some of you will know that a famous American author wrote a lot of short stories. One of those was called The Bad Boy Who Never Came to Grief. It's about a little boy named Jim. Uh, Jim was a terrible boy, and uh, no matter what he did, it seemed like he, he uh, never got punished or uh, hurt because of, his, uh, of his, his, his wickedness. In fact, here's what Twain writes. He says, uh, once he climbed, this is Jim, up in a farmer acorn's apple tree to steal apples, and the limb didn't break, and he didn't fall and break his arm and get torn by the farmer's great dog and then languish on a sickbed for weeks and repent and become good. Then he writes about the time, he says he went boating on a Sunday and didn't get drowned, and that time he got caught out in the storm when he was fi fishing on Sunday and he didn't get struck by lightning. This happens over and over to Jim. This is the whole point of the story. Finally, Jim grows up. And Mark Twain writes this, Jim got wealthy by all manner of cheating and rascality, and now he is the infernalist, wickedest scoundrel in his native village and is universally respected and belongs to the legislature. Um, Twain, of course, is helping us laugh at the unfairness of life, 
right, that there are many times when, when we are confronted by unfairness, and if we didn't laugh, we might go crazy because we, we see it all around us. We see that life just doesn't seem fair. Life doesn't seem to go the way we want. And sometimes it's not funny at all, right? Sometimes we look at our lives and go, man, there's, there's things going on in my life. There's things going on in this world that are not only fair, unfair, but are wicked. They don't make sense. They don't add up at all. Um, and so we have questions very often that don't seem to have really good answers. This is what I love about the book of Ecclesiastes. The, the book of Ecclesiastes is full of such raw honesty, right? Here is this preacher. We're not sure, was it Solomon? Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But in the end, here's a, he's a man who is writing a lot of the things that many of us think, right? We're just afraid to give words to this. We even, even as Christians, he says things that we wonder, like, is this really true? Can we really say these things? And today's no different. I want you to see in this passage, it's actually very simple. He's going to write basically in this passage some of the things that I think we think. That is, life is not fair, everyone sins, and wisdom has limits. This is kind of it where I want you to see that we're going this morning. Life isn't fair, everyone is sinful, and wisdom has limits. So, so let's look at this. I want you to, if you're following along in your Bible, let's just start working at verse 15 and we'll make our way through this passage. And the first thing I want you to see that this preacher is doing is simply pointing out that life is not fair. He starts at the really obvious place. He's going to start from the easy and move to the more difficult. Life isn't fair. Look at verse 15 again with me. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Okay, so the, 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 the writer here is pointing out something obvious that, that, that I think he sees that we understand. Something's wrong with the world. Everybody knows this. It's not hard to look out, see wars, see difficulties, see poverty, see injustice, and go, there is something wrong with the world. The problem is we look at and we think that good things, you know, are happening to bad people. Bad things are happening to good people, right? This is what he sees. And he goes, I don't understand this. I don't, I don't understand why this happens. But I'm seeing that life simply isn't fair. Now, by the way, he's not the only writer of Scripture that struggles with this, right? So, so if you've ever read the book of Job, I mean, the, the, the friends of Job, the reason that they come after Job is what? They, they look and say, why is it? It doesn't make sense that you're going through these horrific things you're going through without you having done something wrong. There must be something that makes sense of all of this calamity that you're facing. It can't be because their understanding is those things shouldn't be happening. It's why Jeremiah is going to say things like, why do the wicked prosper? He looks at it and goes, I don't get this. They hate God. They don't, they don't serve Him, but they seem to be the ones that are prospering. It's why you have Asaph in Psalm 73, who spends an entire psalm essentially going, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of why I see wicked people prospering. I'm looking out and I see them the ones that are strong and happy and healthy and wealthy, but your people suffer, and this simply doesn't make sense to me. And this is part of our issue, right? See, I imagine a lot of you in this room would say, hey, I'm a Christian. 
I, I consider that to be, but yet, and yet we, even as Christians, we feel the friction, the dissonance of injustice in our world, especially when that injustice, that's the reason we call it injustice, right, is because it's happening to people, we don't think they deserve it. Now, now why? Why do we feel this way, even as believers in Jesus? For some of you that, that you say, this is, this is I, I wrestle with that. I wrestle with bad things happening to good people, good things happening to bad people. Well, I think we wrestle with it for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it's because we all are stamped with what's called the Imago Dei, right? We are, we are made in the image of God. We know instinctively there's something wrong. We, we, can, we can recognize injustice when we see it. We see it and we, we wonder why that's happening in the world. But I think that's one reason. But I think the other reason is simply that we have, every one of us, uh, sort of have embedded in us, we might say, a religious impulse. An impulse that says, wait a sec, I'm, I'm good, and I think, I think being good should lead to only good things happening to me. Now, we have a word for this, right? We have a word for when we say bad things happen to good, or you know, when, when, when we think that bad things should happen to bad people and good things should happen to good people, we give that a word, and that word is karma, right? It's a Hindu understanding of the world and a worldview that says this is how the world works. This is the operating system that the world works under. Now, as Christians, we, we hear the philosophy, we hear that theology, we might say. We see that understanding, that worldview. And, and if you understand, you, you, you know, as a Christian, you, you understand that's wrong. We know that's, that's not true at least in our confession, right? Because when I, when I step back from my confession and I actually, you, you hear the way I talk or you talk, it's, it's pretty apparent that our confession is different than our practice. We'll say things. We'll say things that sort of are a giveaway to what we really feel. He didn't deserve that. She didn't deserve that. He was so young. You know, why would this happen to them? Or we, we cast judgment on people. Well, look at how his son or her, their daughter turned out. They were bad parents. See, there's, there's this, this, this line of logic that we should be able to follow. We, we, we understand that things like this happen. And so we give verb, we, we, give, we give voice to this and we, we, we say things that come out that don't match what we believe theologically. Why does God let Putin stay in power? Why the injustice is happening in Ukraine? Why do rich and why are some of the wealthiest people in the world, the most famous people in the world, influential people, why are they people who mock God? When you suffer. What comes out of your mouth when you suffer? Lord, I'm, I'm faithful to you. I come to church every Sunday. I give. I'm involved in everything they tell me I'm supposed to be involved in. I'm reading my Bible. I'm trying to go and, and sort of live out a Christian ethic in front of friends and lost ones, right? Why is this happening to me? Why to me? I'm a good person. Now, now this is a book. This Ecclesiastes is a book 
in, in a section of Scripture called, of course, the wisdom literature. And that is what, what it's teaching us is that wisdom will teach you the error of that kind of thinking. It'll show you that thinking that way is wrong. So here's, here's the writer of Ecclesiastes going, man, in, in my vain life, I've seen this. I've seen this unfairness of life. Now, how should we respond to it? How to respond to the fact that there is unfairness? Well, look at verse 16 with me. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now look back at verse 16. Be not overly righteous. You're, some of you are thinking, that's a command I can obey. Right Now, I can do this. I've heard a lot of commands in Scripture. Here it is, finally one I can lay hold of, right? What is he saying there? Be not overly righteous? Is it possible to strive too much for righteousness? Um, I, I don't think this lines up. If we, if we, if we want to think of it that way, then, then if I, you know, I'm, I'm, God says be holy as I am holy. You're supposed to be perfect, right? God places the standard above our heads and says this is what we're supposed to be. So is God overly righteous? Well, that doesn't make sense, right? That doesn't, God is perfect, so what is he saying when he says, let me give you a couple of options. I think we can go either way on this, and you can land in either of these spots if you want. I think when he says, be not overly righteous, option number one would simply teach us that talking, that, that, that what the preacher is doing is talking about a, uh, a, 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 a not genuine righteousness, but a righteousness that's wrong. And we have a term for this, right? We call it self-righteousness, right? That is that I, I, it's or legalism, however you want to phrase that. That is that somehow um, I, I'm, uh, I can show you, I can behave in such a way, and I'm, I'm sort of proud of this fact. I mean, Jesus is going to come along in the Sermon on the Mount and said, man, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, there's got to be a greater righteousness there. The Pharisees had a self-righteousness. That is, they would look and say, I'm morally superior to you because of, of what I've done. I'm, I've got this impressive resume. I want to flaunt that in front of you. And so they'd look and say, there's no way. God doesn't let people like me suffer. He only goes after bad people. Um. Now, now uh, most people think like this. I'm the good person. God goes after the bad person. You know, rib the person next to you right now. You need to hear this sermon, not me. Right? That's how we tend to respond. Because I'm good. Why? Because I get to define what's good. It's amazing how well I live up to my own standards. How, how much, right, I, 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 as long as I achieve the things that I define as good or bad, I'm great. Right? I don't murder. I've never beat my wife. I don't torture puppies. I'm good, right? It's all good for me. I live up to my own kind of righteousness. So the preacher says, don't be that kind of righteous. Don't be the righteous Pharisee, remember there's a story Jesus tells in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector come to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee looks up and he's proud and says, I'm so glad I'm not like him. You know, I do this and I do that and listen to all I do, and all the, all the tax collector can do is bow his head. He can't even look up and, and just say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And Jesus says, which one of them walked away justified? The, the, the tax collector, right? Not, not the Pharisee. Saying, Look, so that's the overly righteous. That's the self-righteous. I think that's the first option of how we're to see verse 16. The second option, is, I think, is what Jesus is, or what the preacher is telling us. He's warning us that even if this is real righteousness, it's a warning that real righteousness isn't insurance against calamity. You follow me? Like in other words, look, we go to our New Testament, we read that Christ, the apostles, the Old Testament, the prophets, they all suffered. These were godly men, women, right? Nothing in your Bible says that if you're righteous, you won't suffer. And I love that the Bible doesn't do that. No, Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you, Right? In this world, you will have troubles, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Like these things are going to happen. Sometimes life is cut short. Righteousness will not prolong your life as such. God has determined the length of our days. He said, this is how many you have. Righteous or unrighteous, this is what you get. God's decided that, right? The length, the quality of them are up to God. So I think that's what he's saying in verse 16, that there, there is a kind of righteousness. It's not an insurance against calamity, but there's a kind of righteousness possibly that, uh, that, that, that is wrong. It's a self-righteousness. Okay, but what does he mean in verse 16, I think, or 17, sorry? He says what? He says, um, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool, why should you die before your time, right? A fool is, is somebody who says there is no God, who utterly rejects God, who, who wants nothing to have to do with any sort of biblical or ethical or godly principles. And, and here's, here's the fact of life. Normally, that kind of wickedness uh, will lead to a short life. It just will. I love how one commentator says this. He says, think of the mobster the drug lord, the gang member, or the pimp, the danger of being that kind of fool is obvious. Such professions are hardly known for their retirement homes and good pensions. 90% of the murders in the city, such as Chicago or Edinburgh or L.A., occur because the overly wicked are killing each other. And what is he saying? Do not run with that crowd. If you do, you're likely to die before your time. And then lastly, he says in verse 18, look at this. He just says, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. In other words, man, let this settle in. Wisdom will teach you this. Grab hold of this truth that life isn't fair. Avoid these extremes. Avoid the extreme of, of, of what? Of, of moralism or, or the extreme of self-righteousness. Avoid the extreme of, of utter wickedness. He's not saying live in some sort of muddy middle, but he's saying these are the extremes. There is another way. Life isn't fair. And when you know that, it will make you humble. It will make you dependent. It will make you repentant for the ways that your understanding doesn't shape up with, with this understanding. That's the first thing. Second thing is everyone is sinful. Now let's look at this together, and I want to try to help us understand by double-clicking on some things here. So verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise men more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 
Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Okay, now, now I think what's happening here is he's saying, look, wisdom is worth pursuing. It's worth it, right? It's better than living in a city led by a godly, wise leader. Can you imagine this? Imagine living in a town, more than 10 rulers. Is that what he says, verse, verse, uh, verse 19? More than 10 rulers who are in a city, right? In other words, imagine living in a place that is ruled, not just by one, but by you know, the city council, the, the, the legislature. Everybody loves God. We call that place Texas in America, right? This is what people think. So what do they do? I'm going to move there. I want to go to that place. I want to go to that place where every, all, all the values are my values. Everybody thinks like I think. And, and, and we can be among all of our friends. Well, um, I'm telling you, this is happening in spades in America. We live in Southern California. And maybe you know or have heard of not just the fires that are driving people out of, out of California, but but the politics and all this, so Christians feel like it's a little more of a hostile environment. I don't want to live here anymore, and so they're moving, and I want to get out of here. Here's the problem. Wherever you go, there you are, right? In other words, I've told my kids this. Like, you can, you can leave your environment. Your heart always goes with you. If your heart isn't transformed, right, you get there, and you've just, just transplanted. There's, there's nothing really different Here's what he's saying. Like, what's better than going to a place of being in an environment that's all in agreement with you? What's better than that? You get wisdom yourself. Wisdom transforms your heart. You can live anywhere you want if that's the case. You can be, you can go because wisdom will guide you. Now, some people, now watch this because it's almost as though he's going to go, oh, that's me, right? That's somebody going, yeah, 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 that's me. I'm a wise person. I'm this person, so now, man, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm in this better position of verse 19. But look at verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. <laughs> so very quickly, he knocks us down a peg. And he says, look, that not even, even godly rulers sin, right? David sinned. David is going to say, no one living is righteous. Romans 3, Paul's going to pick up on this and say, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's who we are. John says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. You're a liar. Um, so he says, look, even, even all, there, there, there isn't anybody like this. And now he's going to prove it. Look at verses 21 and 22. Don't say, don't, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. I love this. This is, this is him proving that all of us have sinned, right? We, because he's basically saying, you do the very things that you get upset with people for doing. That is like, we're all guilty, right? That is, you, you, uh, we, we, we don't like it when people talk behind our backs. We don't like it when we're the subject of gossip. That's wrong. That's sinful. People shouldn't do that. And then he points the finger back and says, but you do it too. We all do it. In fact, he says, you do it in your heart. Whether or not you've actually ever come out and gossiped out loud, everybody has thought these kind of thoughts in their mind. 
Right? We all tear down people in, in our minds, right? Some of you, right, you, you did it today. Maybe you're doing it now. I mean, you're, we're, we're doing this all the time. So he's saying, man, look at this. No one is like this. We don't control our tongues. We let things fly out of our mouths that we shouldn't say. Somebody said that the proof that all humans are sinful is right between our teeth. Right? This is what James is going to say. I mean, this little tiny member of your body, it just lights things on fire. It's just uncontrollable. It's like a rudder of a ship. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. Right now, what, what, but, but what the Bible says is that God promises wisdom to all who ask. He will grant it to you, right? But even wise people sin. So we come to God and say, man, I want to be wise. And yet I realize I'm still sinful. That will do what? When I realize that I'm not as wise or as good as I want to be, it will keep me humble. It will keep me dependent. It will help me be repentant. And that's a really good place to be. Life is unfair. Everyone is sinful. But then look at this. Wisdom has limits. Look at verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? In other words, what he's saying, man, I, I, I can only go so far. The preacher wanted to be wise. That's a great impulse. Hopefully, that's, that's pe- all of us who would call ourselves Christians, that's a really good impulse. Say, I want wisdom. I, I want to know how to rightly apply the truths of Scripture to these areas of my life. That is a wonderful impulse. But, but, but the highest, best of us, right, the most wise, the one with the most understanding, realizes they don't know everything. The only people who think they know everything are teenagers. It's, it's, it's wisdom, it's age, it's maturity that teaches you how little you know and helps you to wake up and realize, I don't understand. It takes a wise person to know the limits of human wisdom. That's, that's what he's saying here. See, um, now what happens? Philosophers come to this point and go, well, then there's no truth. There's no meaning. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you can't know anything. He's saying you're limited in what you can know. There's very little, like there, there, there's some things you can know. There, there's some wisdom that sits up on the, on the surface, but there you cannot plumb the depths of wisdom. This is Paul, Romans 11. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable is his understanding, inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? In other words, there are depths of wisdom that you and I will never get to, no matter how godly, no matter how mature we are in this life. there There are secret things, the Bible says, that belong to God. There are things we'll never, ever know. Like, look, um... You could never swim to the, to the, you know, I don't know what the deepest abyss in the ocean is, but there's some place off of California called the Laurentian Abyss that is, you know, just, it's all black. It's, it's miles down. No human being will ever free dive to the bottom of that. Right? Not possible. It's just not possible. This is, this is the idea. Wisdom is deeper than that. 
and we can plumb, we can, we can drop into that ocean, but we'll never plumb the depths. It's too far. It's impossible. It doesn't mean wisdom doesn't exist. I mean, look, at this is, this is when the Lord shows up after all of Job's complaining in Job 38 and just begin to say, Job, were you there when I did this? Were you there when I separated the waters from the land? Were you there? Do you know this wisdom? Do you have any frame of reference? And the answer is no, 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 no. And then Job's going to come to the very end and say, man, I, I heard you by the hearing of the ear. Now I see you, right? And I repent in dust and ashes. I, I, I thought I could be that wise and I can't. Um, God is God. We are not. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. He's wise, all wise. So, so the Bible's going to say, pursue it. Pursue wisdom. Just realize it has limits. That will make you humble, dependent, and repentant. And that's a good place to be. Now, look at this, though. Okay, So, wisdom has limits, but then watch this. Look at verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Okay, so now look what he says. There's something I do know, right? I may not know, I may not be able to plumb the depths of wisdom, but there's some stuff that sort of sits up on the surface here, and that is that wickedness is stupid and folly is crazy. That I can know. I can look and see some some fairly obvious things, and then he's going to give us some examples of that. So watch, keep reading. Verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken in by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. Okay, now let me, let me just clear some things up here. Okay, in, in Scripture, in wisdom literature, folly and wisdom are portrayed as women. Okay, so it's not picking on women saying women are foolish. That's not what this is saying. He's using lady folly, lady wisdom. They contrast with one another, and, and they're personified in the book of Proverbs and, and even here, right? So he's saying he's not picking on women. He's simply showing that, that uh, there, there is a, there, that what lady folly does, and you'll see this in Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7, seducing people into sexual immorality. I think what's happening here is the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, look, there's some things that I can know. I can know that wickedness is crazy and folly is stupidity. And I can know that sexual immorality is the height of folly. It's, it's easy to see. Now look, I, I, I think one of the things we can say is that, is that we know this. We know this almost instinctively. Like we know the folly of sexual immorality. Like, like, we still, even on law books, we still call things adultery. We, we, we still understand that, that sex is more than just a physical act, right? We live in a culture that has gone to extremes, right? One says sex is nothing. This is not, by the way, I'm not trying to make this, it's not about sexual intimacy as much as, he's just, he's pointing out the obvious. There, we, we have a culture that says sex either is everything and defines me, or it's nothing. It's nothing. It's like a handshake. Everybody knows that's not true. Uh, uh, 
Jennifer Lawrence, some of you know, is a movie star, Chris Pratt, they, they made this movie together. I didn't see it. It's called Passenger. But I read a story about her that uh, there, was a, there was a scene in that movie where, where she had to kiss him and there was, some, there was, a, was like a, a, an intimate moment and, uh, and she was very nervous about it. Like, see, th th because we can't say sex means nothing. So here's what she did. She says, the first time I've ever kissed a man who was married and had to do that. So in order to prep, prep herself, she got drunk. And then after it was over, she came back and she called her mom and just to say, just please tell me everything's going to be okay. Why? Because we know that it, this idea that sex means nothing is simply not true. Why is it so harmful when it's misused? Why does it leave scars, right? We know this is true. And here's the preacher going, look, uh, not all wisdom is out of reach. There's some things that are pretty plain to see. There's some obvious truths that we can lay hold of, but it's still rare for people to see. Right? We have an idea that sex is liberation. It's just the, it's, you know, I, I am utterly liberated in, in our culture through what? Through, through sex. But look at, look at what uh, he says about liberation. Look at the second part of verse 26. He says, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken in by her. The very place we think they're the, we're the freest, the Bible says you're actually ensnared. Um, I think, I think le if this is Solomon talking, <laughs> maybe he's speaking out of experience. We know he had seven, uh, seven, uh, 300 wives, 700 concubines that's just exhausting to think about right but but that 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 so he's looking and saying and many of them drew his heart away from god that's what the bible says only wisdom will teach you that because the culture never will it'll never tell you it'll tell you it's everything it's nothing it's not going to teach you where it's properly used right to suppress sexuality, you know, is to suppress identity. Or, or it means that, you know, you're just suppressing just this basic human urge because it, it means nothing. We know that's not true. And here's the writer of Ecclesiastes showing us that. Now, look at, look at verse 28. He says, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have uh, not found one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now again, that, that really sounds uh, horrible. It sounds like this is picking on women. It sounds like men are smarter than women. I don't think that's what's happening. Now look, that might have been Solomon's opinion. He had 300 wives, 700 concubines, but I don't, I don't think that's the idea here. I think the idea is hyper, you know, it's hyperbolic. It's, it's saying, look, among the race of people, among the race of men and women, it is nearly impossible to find wis wisdom. Folly is the dominant human trait apart from God. I think that's what he's doing here. But then look at verse 29. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they sought out many schemes. So he says, says okay, I, I, know, I know God made us. We, we fell, right? We rebelled. We live now in a fallen, sinful world where everyone is sinful. And every generation, it seems like we've sought out new schemes, 
Isn't this interesting? Like, look around. Doesn't it seem, if you're paying attention to what's happening in culture, it's as though we're trying to find new ways, new innovative ways of, of sinning, uh, of trying to do things that violate God's law. And here's a writer, you know, 3,000 years ago saying that was his time. People are constantly doing this is, this is the world that we live in. A world that is unfair, where everyone is sinful, and where wisdom has limits. But let me, let me show you one last thing. I sort of skipped over this, but go back to verse 20, because I, I want you to see that even though he says this, and surely the Bible would agree with much of this, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There's something else the Bible teaches. There's a good man who never sins. Right? That is, that is... When we say that bad things happen to good people or good things happen to bad people, there's been only one time in human history, biblically speaking, where a bad thing happened to a good person. Because there really was a good person, and that good person was Jesus. There was one who, who, was, who, who was without sin. See, the Bible agrees with the preacher. No one is righteous, but there's just this one exception when we get to the New Testament. Christ is like us in every way except without sin. And so Paul's going to say, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that when we're united to Christ, now Christ's righteousness becomes my own. So how do, this is right, here's the question of Scripture, how do sinful people stand before a holy God? The answer is they cannot, there's no way they can, unless they become righteous. And I know I can't do it on my own, and so now I receive a foreign righteous. Christ enters the world, and His righteousness now through faith, He lives this perfect life. I put my faith in Him. I'm united to Him by faith. Now, now I, I become one. He, he gets what I deserve. I get what he deserves. When you ask this question, what makes you right before God? Or let's say it another way. Does God love you right now? And if the answer to that question is yes, great. If the answer because I've put my faith in him, great. But if the answer is something like, well, he would if only I would, would what? Do better? Try harder? Be more holy? Be a better dad? Be a better mom? Be a better son? See, see when we answer that way, he would if only I would, then I don't need the cross anymore. I don't, I don't need what the cross, right? We sing the song, he bore the wrath deserved for me. Now all I know is grace if I'm in Christ. He who knew no sin, who actually is the exception to verse 20, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know if you've blown it this week, today, this morning, right now. The answer with Jesus is, and yep, you've blown it. Okay, repent. Repent, turn to him. Right, come to him again. Renew yourself. Renew the covenant, if you will, with him. Right? If 
you have put your faith in Jesus, then your sins are forgiven. You're united with him, and you become one with that perfect man and become righteous before God. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we do thank you. We do thank you for your word. We thank you that it crosses all boundaries, and it speaks to us where we live, and Lord, even through the centuries, and we praise you for that. And now, God, apply the word to our hearts. Um, apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, Lord, the, 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 the word will be empty to us, but God, we know your word doesn't return void, and so I pray that it would accomplish what it set out to do in creating worshipers. And so do that today, I pray. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you, Chris. That was such a blessing to sit under your ministry this morning. Thank you. Uh, something that we've been unable to, uh, something that we do regularly here is take time to remember Jesus' death 